0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Let's, let's stand together as we stand on God's holy word. It is a rock of ages. When your pastor's being silly, I promise you, it won't be silly. It'll, it'll tell you what you need to know, okay? Today we want to talk about love sealed And here we come to the end of the journey, it seems, for Jesus. And we want to hear, uh, as you see in the text, it says Jesus is buried. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. ...until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away... ...and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure. As secure as humans can make it. By sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in this moment and we know, Lord that as we come up to the tomb, as we see Jesus laid in the tomb, laid low in death, God, it seems like this is the end of the story, but we know as we build up towards Easter that this is just the beginning. And we pray today, Lord, that we will have the courage to walk to the tomb, that we will have the courage to take our sins and put them in that tomb and leave them there. God, we want your love to guide us. And so today... Let your love fill us. And Lord, we pray that your love will seal us unto redemption and to salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Most of us love a good story. Part of a good story or a good movie is to try to see where the story's going, what's going to be the resolution, the end. Now, if you're like me, you're, you're guessing, and many times, I have to be honest with you, I, I guess wrong. I'll, I'll think it's going to go left, and they go right, whatever. It's part of the fun. But when we come to the Bible, what's interesting to me is the Bible had given clues to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people for years as it related to the ministry of Jesus, but also as it related to his death and burial. And then his resurrection as well. It's all there. The hints were there. But if you think about it it, it, it makes sense that everybody was caught flat-footed and somewhat off guard by the story of Easter. Because we know that death is the final word in the world. Even in the Bible, so many times we see a great man or woman of God, someone within whom the spirit of God is at work. And yet we are told that they died. And they were buried in a tomb. Death seems to be the end, the seal of life, except when it isn't. Early in human history, the first hint that came up was when Enoch walked with God and was no more. Genesis 5.22. That was the first hint that God had something else in store for people than just life and then death. We know that Elijah, many centuries later, was called up to heaven in a whirlwind during the days of the Jewish monarchy in 2 Kings 2.11. These stories are hinting that for the child of God, death is not the end. But until Jesus came, the grave loomed large in every heart and mind. A few weeks ago, as I was looking at this passage, it 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 hit me, and I don't know why it just hit me then, but when you look at Acts chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and so notice what I did there. I gave you two Bible passages and then two later creeds. In all four of those documents, there is an emphasis on the tomb that Jesus was crucified and then put in a tomb. The early Christians saw this as a very powerful part of the story. And naturally, what we do, right, with this story of Jesus, we talk a lot about the cross, and we talk a lot about the resurrection, but we don't talk a lot about the tomb. But the early Christians did. They looked at that tomb, and they wanted us to focus on that because the power of God comes from that tomb. So here are two ironies of our Christian faith. First, to appreciate Jesus' love, we must contemplate the reality of his death and burial. So we can talk about Jesus' messages, his sermons about love, but what's interesting is it's his death and burial that really brings to us, uh, to our faces, to our hearts, the reality of the great love that he has for us. The empty tomb seals God's love for us and secures for us life beyond the grave. The tomb, the grave was not the end for Jesus and by faith in Jesus and the fact that he was put in a tomb uh, can change our lives. Today what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the radical emotions in these handful of verses I just read to you. We have the strongest of emotions and on both ends of the spectrum we have the positive emotions of love and hope as we see Joseph of Arimathea, lovingly caring for Jesus. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have the negative emotions of fear and hate. Because once again, the the, the chief priests, the leaders of the people of Israel say some very ugly things about Jesus and his disciples. And so we're getting both ends of the spectrum in terms of emotions. We have the best of the best, love and hope, and also the worst of the worst, as far as humans go, fear and hate. A little bit of emotional whiplash. Maybe that's what it takes to open our eyes, right? We're going through life, brothers and sisters, and we have so many things going. We're juggling so many things. I think sometimes the text of scripture has to, has to jolt us and remind us that we are living in a world filled with passion, a world filled with, with some very negative things. We've even seen that this week. I'll talk more about it in a moment. We've seen some ugly things in our world just in the last seven days. But we need to know that no matter what we face in this world, the gospel has an answer for us. We have an answer. And I believe what's wild is we have one of the best answers for why we are Christians, why we walk with Jesus when we look at the tomb. The tomb of Jesus can get us excited. Now, I don't know. Sometimes I do when I'm traveling. I don't mind going to graveyards because I'm weird. It's just the way it is, but I doubt many of you do that for the kicks and grins of it. I do, but here's the deal. We're going to go and look at a graveyard today together. We're going to go look at a tomb, and then we're going to walk out of here believing that God can do all things, even through us. So let's first talk about a disciple's love. I think it would be good for us to talk about the good stuff first. Jesus died on the cross approximately at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. The sun would have been setting at about 6 p.m. that day, and there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and he was in a hurry. Joseph was a rich man, we are told here in the text He's from this small village of Arimathea and he had not been one of Jesus' primary disciples, not even part of one of the 120, but John 19.38 describes him as a secret disciple. Um, I don't want to get into this because it's just meddling, but too many of us are secret disciples. That's a sermon for another day. (laughs) The problem isn't that you're a Christian. The problem is nobody knows you're a Christian, but we'll talk about that another day. Though Joseph had kept his love for Jesus on the down low, I want you to see here I don't want to be critical of Joseph because the text is not critical of him. Because he played a very important role. He had been a secret disciple for a reason, and now that reason comes clear to us. Because here on Good Friday, he took no precautions in showing his love for Jesus. He boldly approaches Pilate along with Nicodemus. Now, we don't have that here in Matthew, but this is why we have four Gospels. We have four gospels because it tells us four different viewpoints of the story. But in John's gospel, we learned that Nicodemus, you remember, oh, Nick? Remember Nick? You know, he's also a secret disciple. Uh, He comes at night to talk to Jesus. You know, he doesn't want to, you know, stir things up too much. So we have two guys that are both very wealthy, very influential, very interested in Jesus, but on the down low, but not here. Several things are going on that I want to bring to your attention because things are happening fast. So listen fast. First, Joseph and Nicodemus only have three hours before the sun sets. Why is this important? Well, because they believe in the Bible and they believe Deuteronomy 21:23 was a commandment to them to make sure that no body of any sort would hang on the cross overnight because they believed, according to that text in Deuteronomy, that that would bring a curse on the land. And so they want Jesus off the cross because that's the, that's the culture, that's the expectation. And they didn't want to bring a curse on the land. Now, Pilate had to have been smart enough to know that this was the tradition. And I think this is why he is so amendable to Joseph's request. Pilate doesn't push back. In his nature, I would think he might have pushed back, but he doesn't. He acquiesces, he says, that's fine. He allows this to happen. And one of the reasons he lets it happen is because Joseph has something that very few people in that day would have had, which is his own tomb. Very few people could afford their own tomb. This man was rich enough, wealthy enough to have that. And so not only did he have a request to Pilate, but he had a location to take Jesus' battered body. Pilate says... Go for it. With Pilate's blessing and the help of Nicodemus and several servants, again going into John's gospel, Jesus' body was carried to this tomb very lovingly. He is wrapped in a clean linen shroud. That seems like a minor detail, but that also would have been extremely expensive, and only the wealthy could afford to bury their dead in such fine linen. They placed within, uh, they placed him within the tomb, and they wanted to get him there before the Sabbath. And they do so. Verse 61 tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary witnessed this act and were able to report to the disciples the place where they laid their Lord. Now, this is all important for the rest of the story. But once again, it shows a historical narrative of a person named Jesus who was carried to a tomb by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to a specific place and buried in a specific tomb on a specific day. These things are important because Jesus lived in this world. He died and was buried. The gospel that we cherish is not a myth. It happened. And Matthew is clear, and these details make it clear. So the disciples would know where the tomb was, and so everyone would know where to go and mourn. But I want you to see here, just for a moment, I want you to think with me how beautiful the love is of Joseph of Arimathea in particular and how it brings a certain symmetry to our story. Have you ever thought about this? I can't believe I've never thought about this. I wish this idea was original to me, but I read it somewhere. Probably the first man that cradled Jesus in his arms was named Joseph. And the last man who held him in his arms when he put him down in the tomb was named Joseph, there's symmetry here. His father and now, his earthly father and now Joseph of Arimathea. And I want you to see that Joseph of Arimathea had much to lose. According to Mark 15, 42 and Luke 23, 50, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he would lose his position of authority. So it seems like he's doing the right thing, but I want you to know to follow Jesus comes with a cost. It's true for this story For Joseph, it is true for you and me as well. But here's the deal. When you love deeply, you don't worry about what you lose by loving the other. You see, it's a question of how deep is your love. Do you love Jesus enough to lose what you have? Joseph of Arimathea is a beautiful picture of love because it is love willing to give no matter what the cost. And I think for us today, that's the question. As we face a culture that is more and more anti-Christian, more and more antithetical to our belief system and what we cherish, we are going to have to ask the question, do we love enough to let go Do we cherish Jesus enough to lose things? Hard times reveal what you love. Stress reveals what you love. When the system is under pressure, that's when you fall back into the important things, the necessary things. And that's what we see here. When the pressure was on for Joseph, I I said earlier, I made it sound like him being a secret disciple was a bad thing. Listen, he was a disciple. He loved Jesus, and here he shows it by his willingness to sacrifice everything, probably even his life. I believe there are four areas in our life where stress likes to creep in, physical, emotional, spiritual, and I'm going to add a fourth, material. I think those four things are where stress likes to hit us. If we've got three of the four, you say, well, that ain't bad, but this ain't baseball. It isn't about batting 750, okay? Any one of those four gets off the rails and the pain is real. And we need to realize that we are going to find stress in this world. And when we are under strain, when our hearts are pressed down, it is only the love of Jesus that can hold us fast as we were singing. You see, a disciple's love do you, as a disciple of Jesus, have enough love in your heart that you'll let go of anything to hold on to him? Let's talk about a tomb sealed. It sounds crazy to us, but in the first century, grave robbing was a big-time uh, profession. If uh, On the History Channel, the only thing they talk about are World War II things, Egyptians and UFOs. And I don't really understand the UFOs, okay? I don't know why the History Channel has to do that. But if you watch some of those Egyptian shows, you know, and if you've ever uh, watched as they open up a tomb or something like that, you know almost every tomb they open has already been robbed. Somebody's already come in and got most of the stuff out of it. So we know that this was a, a problem in the ancient world. Not just in Palestine, it was true in Egypt, but it was also true in Rome and in Greece. If you go to Rome, outside of Rome, the old roads, the old Roman roads going out of town, they would have had tombs all over the place. That was one of the traditions. And people would try to break in those tombs because people would put valuables in them. And so the ceiling of a tomb was not unusual. Unusual. In fact, the fact that this mentions it only really just shows it as being a part of that milieu, that that cultural context. Because the Romans often had to literally put their loved ones in tombs and then put a seal on that tomb. Some kind of wax seal or something that if broken and someone was caught breaking it, they would be crucified. Here in verse 60 we are told that the tomb was also sealed with a great stone. Before, the soul, before everybody went away, before Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and his servants went away. So what we have here is we have Jesus' tomb being described to us as sealed, both literally and figuratively, or officially, as the Romans would see it. Now, why do they do this? The Romans are doing this, one, because it was part of their culture and tradition to make sure that people didn't steal from graves, But why did the Romans do this in this particular uh, instance? I don't think Jesus had anything to steal. I think the reason that they did it was fear. They were afraid. They knew that Jesus, not only the Romans, not only Pilate, but in particular, the Jewish leaders... They had been listening to Jesus. Now, let me just say this. I'm not trying to be critical. But this is another one of those instances where the people of God are often not listening to God when other people are. And in this instance, um, the Jewish leaders who did not believe in Jesus had heard Jesus' teachings. And he had told his disciples that he would rise again after three days. And so they bring that up. In their minds, this was not possible. But in their minds, they believed that these men would try to rob the grave. They would try to take Jesus' body out of the tomb and then claim a miracle had occurred. So Pilate agrees that soldiers need to put on guard. But I want you to know there's more than fear at work here. There is also deep hatred. Look at the language here in our text The Jewish leaders call Jesus that imposter in verse 63. In verse 64, he is called a fraud. They're talking about Jesus who only preached love, who was always consistent, who cared for the flock that was his own and even the sheep that were in Israel. He never did anybody wrong, and yet he is called here that imposter and fraud. These men were bold. They were bold in like fashion to to Joseph who did it out of love, right, and hope. But here we see instead the boldness guided by fear and hate. We see these men saying these things and acting in this way because they believe that Jesus and his disciples are fraudulent. These are men who listen to Jesus and listen well. These are men who are not religious, although they claim to be. Uh, these, These men are religious, they claim to be, but they are not going to allow anything to compromise their beliefs, their particular ideas, no matter what God brings their way. So twisted are their minds that they call God's only son, listen to this, a deceiver, an imposter, a fraud. These are religious people. Hear this. We will be upside down in our morals if we give into fear and hatred. Now, I'm talking to a group of people in here that you would say... Uh, most of you in the room would be professing Christians. You would say that you are Christ followers. Uh, But I want you to know that it is possible that we are not turning the world upside down because we allow our fear and hatred to turn our hearts upside down. And let me give you an example. What has happened in our country this past week is tragic, this Presbyterian Church of America church in Nashville that that has experienced this great loss of life of children and adults It's a terrible thing naturally the press has taken this and spun it a whole other direction You all know that story. I don't need to tell you these things. I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about But I want you to think about this for a moment The devil wins if we allow fear or hatred to motivate how we talk about this and what we do about this because here's the deal Every single soul in this world is sinful. There are those in our culture who stand against Christian morals and values and beliefs. We know this. Here we have it from the very beginning. People standing against Jesus and his word and his promises. These are people who should have accepted him with open arms. But because they allowed fear and hatred to take over their hearts, they became enemies of God. I want you to know, church, that it is important for us to never allow hatred or fear to fuel our words and actions. That's what the world does. But when you allow your emotions, when you say, man, we've got to get this right, we got to fix this, and usually we have political means to an end to do that, but I want you to know this. I will stand up against error. I will preach against falsehood. But I always want to make sure that I'm doing it with the love of Jesus, with the hope that we win people to Jesus. Being ugly to the world is no way to win the world. Standing up for truth is an absolute necessity, but we must do it with love. And too often it is fear and hatred that is driving the church. We're upset and we're mad because we're losing ground or we think that the world is against us. Well, it is. It's been against us from the beginning. And Jesus still loved the world and gave himself for it. When we have hope and love driving us, we'll lay down our life too. But fear and hatred are driving us. We won't let anybody get anything over on us. The more fear grips your heart in this world, the less likely you are to experience the power of Jesus. And that power comes from another world. Let me tell you what I think. I think to win America, we need a power from another world. I think we need a love like no other. I think we need grace and mercy like the world rarely has seen We can talk about revival all day long and what that looks like, but let me tell you what it looks like to me. It looks like a bunch of people like us, common folks who just love Jesus and love lost people. The world needs to know that we love them. Fear is natural enough, but fear comes from the most unnatural place. Fear comes from hell. The more you give in to fear, the more your life will have the stench of hell. We want to have the aroma of Christ. We want to have the aroma of heaven. We must make sure that our hearts are right. That we are not allowing fear to grab a hold of us. The tomb was sealed. Fear is what sealed that tomb. Fear on the part of the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. But it is hope and love that changes everything. Let's finish by talking about our Savior. Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women who were there showed their love for Jesus. I believe this is an image, a a, a picture, if you will, of their belief that he is still the Savior. I I believe, I really do. I don't think they knew exactly what was going to happen, but I think this devotion is more than practical. I think this devotion shows that they were listening to Jesus just as the Jewish leaders were. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they knew something was going to happen. In all four Gospels, it is the women... Who seem to have the clearest understanding of who Jesus is, have the most love for him, the most faith, and the most hope. But here we see Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus had that same faith and hope. Hear me out Jesus will never disappoint those who love him, have faith in him, and put their hope in him all the way to the tomb. Jesus will not let you down. In one of the earliest expressions of the gospel, Paul says this to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice it mentions the burial. Paul says to the Romans, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. Both of those important passages talk about burial, the burial of Jesus. But also, Paul is pointing to the burial of our sins. Jesus' burial is a sign of hope to all who believe. Jesus was placed in the tomb because he did die for our sins. And our sins, they're what can stay in the tomb. And what I want to tell you is this. There are aspects of your life this morning that you are carrying with you that need to stay in the tomb. The bottom line is this. Jesus comes out of that tomb with resurrection power and authority. But what needs to stay in the realm of death are the sins that lead unto death. I am a believer in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has the only answer to death and the grave. Every other faith and every other religion and every other so-called hope really doesn't have much to give you when it comes to your last breath. But when we are in Christ, when we believe in Jesus, we know that our story doesn't end at the tomb any more than Jesus' does. And that knowledge ought to change how you live your life. I want you to think about what this text is telling us, and I believe this will get our hearts Easter-oriented. You know, there's a difference between intersections and dead ends. A dead end is something that when we come up to it, we really can't go any further. That's the end of the line. If you do not have Jesus, you will carry your sins with you into eternity. That is a dead end. But when we look at the tomb of Jesus, it is not a dead end. It is just an intersection. Yes, death will stop you. There is a stop sign. And even those of you who drive in Springfield, you'll have to stop at this one, okay? You will. It is appointed and the man wants to die and then comes the judgment. We all will come to a stop, but we will go on because the tomb is empty. That's what Easter is all about. It's not telling you you're not going to die. It's just saying when you die in Christ, you will continue on. You will be given a body that is like his, and you will live forever with him. I can remember as a 20-year-old preacher preaching my first funeral sermon, and I remember just the sadness of that day. It was a pretty spring day like today is going to be. I don't remember if the wind was blowing 100 miles an hour, but I do remember it was a pretty spring day. And I just remember, how can I do this? How can I, for the rest of my life, come and preach funerals and stand over graves? And this dear lady, I won't give her name, but she was so sweet. She was one of the first people who invited me in and and, and showed me why Southern Baptist preachers are so overweight. She was a great cook. She put, like, sugar in the macaroni and cheese. You ever heard of such a thing? Try it. It is really good. I mean, she made sliced bread taste awesome. This woman was great. And I just remember, and I saw this family grieving, and I have to tell you, it was then, right then, that... that, my life was changed. It was at a grave. I realized that the only way I could continue to be there for people in such sad circumstances was to believe that this was not a dead end, but just a stop sign leading to something else. Right. I want you to know that, that I stand before you. I don't pretend. Listen, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert preacher. I don't pretend to understand theology perfectly. I make mistakes up here all the time. I do. I am a less than perfect man. But here's the deal. What keeps me motivated and what keeps me preaching and what keeps me singing, though the people who sit over here don't like to hear it, what keeps me singing is the fact that I know that death is not the end. I know that Jesus is risen indeed. And next week, we're going to celebrate that. But know this. Love was sealed in a tomb, but love didn't stay there. And because love didn't stay there, and your sins and death will, you have power in this world to live for Jesus. Let's thank God for that tomb. And let's thank God for the power and love we have. Let me just say this. If you don't have Jesus in your heart this morning, I want you to know that death is a dead end. The beauty of the gospel is it has the other side of the equation where we know so many people will not believe and be saved. When we look at these Jewish leaders, in the past people have got, oh man, look how bad they are. Well, Be broken hearted that these men who had studied the Bible all their lives rejected Jesus. You can study the Bible all your life. You can know every right answer to every Bible question and not know Jesus And if the Spirit is telling you that's you, you better get right because the dead end is coming. The only way through is Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.